Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. We're going to talk about the righteousness of God through faith. Some, some have called uh, Romans 3, 21 to 31, maybe specifically 21 to 26, uh, the most important chapter in the entire Bible. One, one, uh, one theologian I read said, if you could go the rest of your life and only, you know, only read one passage of scripture ever again for your whole life, then it should be Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Um, so it's an important text. Last week we saw in verses 9 to 20, the unrighteousness of man, the wrath of God against humanity who stands guilty before him, Jews and Gentiles, religious and non-religious, every single person who's ever lived is going to stand before God Mouth silence, no excuses, nothing to say in their own defense. That's where we left off in verse 20. And in verse 21, there's a market shift that, that, that uh, you know, ushers in a new section in the, in the book. Paul transitions from talking about the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of humanity to the grace of God, the righteousness of God that's expressed through his saving grace toward those very uh, sinners. We're going to talk about, you know, how can, how can a, a person who lacks the righteousness that God requires, the, the righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require, how can a person who lacks that, how can God take them and forgive their sin and save them from his wrath and reconcile them to himself so that they can live with him under his righteous rule forever? That's the, that's the question that has been set up. It's been posed by the first three and a half, first two and a half chapters of Romans. And that's the question that, that Paul is going to answer in this passage and then in the passages that following it in chapters four and five and six and seven and, and eight. So we're going to read verses 21 to 31, and then we're going to take some time and, and uh, consider it together. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, incredibly privileged to be able to sit under the reading of and the, the, the proclamation of your word. It's a great gift uh, to, to own a Bible, right? For those of us who don't own a Bible, it's a great gift to be able to come to a church where we can hear the Bible read and where we can uh, have a Bible to, to take home with us. It's, it's uh, a great privilege for us as human beings, finite creatures, to be able to hear and see and read and experience and contemplate the mind of God, the glory of God. And so we thank you. And Lord, we pray that you would bless, uh, bless our time this morning as we consider your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen. Okay, verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So Paul is saying that there is a righteousness that is separate from, it's different from the righteousness that comes through the the law. Remember, the first few chapters of Romans, right? Paul is saying that uh, humanity lacks a righteousness that God requires. doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are. No one has the righteousness that God requires in order to be saved. No one is good enough that God is going to accept him on the basis of his performance or his morality or his righteousness or his obedience to the law. We get this profound problem. God requires a righteousness. We lack that righteousness And Paul says, but it's okay because there's another righteousness, there's a different righteousness that God has has provided for us, that that has been manifested apart from the law. It has nothing to do with your obeying the law. It's an entirely different righteousness, an, an alien righteousness that comes from somewhere else that's not from within you. The righteousness that man needs to stand before God, the righteousness that we as Christians have so that we can stand before God does not come from obeying the law. It does not come from being a good person. It doesn't come from anything that we earn in and of ourselves. But even though this righteousness does not come from the law, it's from it's apart from the law, the law and the prophets do, in fact, bear witness to it. So uh, the, the righteousness that God requires doesn't come from your moral performance, but the law and the prophets themselves point to, bear witness to, testify about, and direct our attention to the true righteousness of God, namely the righteousness that we receive from Christ when we, when we trust in him. Paul's saying, ever since the beginning of time, ever since the, the, you know, before the, the world was from, from eternity past, God has been planning and preparing and arranging the salvation of his people through the person and work of, of Christ. All throughout the Old Covenant, all throughout the Old Testament, every book of the law, every book of, of history, every uh, the, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, every square inch of the Old Covenant was pointing forward to and bearing witness to the miracle that is God providing his righteousness to his people through Christ, God imputing his righteousness to his people through through Christ. Paul's critics, a lot of what was being said around Paul, a lot of the criticism of Paul was that Paul is, he's departed from the tradition of orthodoxy that we find ourselves in. Right? Paul is teaching something new. Paul's a cult leader. Paul is, is uh, you know, making up a new religion, and now he's preaching it, you know, in the same way that we would understand L. Ron Hubbard or something like that, right? Like a, a guy who has made up a new religion that has no credibility. It has no standing. It, you know, it, if a dude has a social security number, then he can't make up a religion. That's like, so, so they're saying Paul is one of, like, Paul made up a new religion. It's not, it's not anything that's rooted in history like our religion, right? We've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and then us, the, 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 the religious establishment of Israel, the priests and scribes and Pharisees. Like, we stand in the tradition of those heroes of old what we believe about salvation and what we believe about righteousness is what they taught about salvation and righteousness, that, that we're a chosen nation. God called us to be holy, separate from the world. And because of our righteousness and because of our Jewishness, God accepts us and gives us eternal life. That's what our forefathers taught. That's the message that we are the custodians of. And Paul is departing from it and is teaching something different and new and wrong. And Paul says that is You've got it all wrong. That is, that is uh, in fact, it's, it's flipped in, entirely. In reality, your teaching about salvation by works and, and religious self-righteousness is not the, it's not the rightful heir to the teaching of the Old Testament. You don't stand in the tradition of the Old Testament. You represent a departure from what the Old Testament actually taught. And my gospel of salvation by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus is not 
new or novel. It is the progression of and the rightful heir of the teaching of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets do not bear witness to your system of justification by works. The law and the prophets bear witness to my gospel of justification by faith. You know, we could spend all morning walking through Genesis and Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy throughout the rest of the, the Old Covenant showing how the, the, the Old Testament pointed forward to and anticipated and was expecting Jesus, the Savior and Messiah, to, to come. And Paul's actually going to do that, right? In, in Romans 4, Paul looks at Abraham and shows how Abraham was saved by faith, right? Thus, thus vindicating and giving evidence to his gospel. Romans 5, Paul looks at Adam and shows how Adam sinned and invited death and condemnation into humanity, and we have all inherited that from Adam until Jesus came and gives us life where Adam had brought death. In Romans 7, Paul looks at the Old Testament law and, and shows how you know we have failed to obey the law, but even though we have, Jesus has come to save us and to empower us to obey the law rightly, right? Romans 8, uh, Paul looks at, you know, before the foundations of the world, God predestined and he called his people. Romans 9 through 11, he's looking at the nation of Israel. Like all of Romans, the, the entire book is, is looking at and kind of pulling from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant how God has been working out his plan to save sinners by grace through faith. So, the righteousness of God, not man, has been manifested apart from the law, not through obedience to the, the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so, by now, we're probably wondering, all right, well, what, what is it? What is the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about? Right? If it's not my righteousness and my obedience that I offer to God, then what is it? Where does it come from? How do I receive it? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Right? It's not something that I earn or accomplish or give to God. It's, it's, um, it's something that Jesus accomplishes and then gives to me. It's not a matter of what I do to earn God's favor. It's a matter of trusting in Christ who has already done something on my behalf. He has already lived and, and kind of uh, you know, embodied the righteousness that God requires on my behalf. He says, for there is no distinction, meaning no distinction between Jew and Gentile, religious person and non-religious person. Right? There's no distinction between those who we understand to be moral and righteous, relatively speaking, to everyone else, and those who we understand to be immoral and unrighteous, relatively speaking, compared to everyone else. There's, there's no distinction between those various segments of humanity. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same predicament. Verse 23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Two different verbs here, two different tenses here. All have sinned, past tense, completed action, done, recorded, indelibly. There's no changing it now because it's in the past. And all fall short, present tense, progressive, something that is happening. It continues to happen into perpetuity even as we, we speak. And Paul's saying all human beings, we're all under sin. We've all committed sins in the past. We all continue to commit sins against God right now into perpetuity. Our words, thoughts, actions, attitudes, motivations, right? None of us can claim, none of us can look back into the past and claim to have a, a spotless, sinless record before God. And none of us uh, can look at our lives presently and, and walk with a swagger thinking that we have arrived and that we don't sin any longer. We all have sinned and we all do and are falling short in the past, now, and in the future. What is it that we fall short of? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. God's original intention for what he 
envisioned humanity to be. One theologian describes the glory of God as the the magnificence and worth and loveliness and grandeur of God's many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his his presence. The the glory of God is the the beauty of God, the, the magnificence of God, the worth of God, the value of God because of who he is and what he does. And when God created the world, when God created something out of nothing, he took, right, God kind of, he took his glory, the the beauty and grandeur and value and splendidness of who he is, God took that glory and, and put it into, like, creation reflects God's glory. Creation has some element of God's glory baked into it, and creation has this pointing away from its self-effect where it points to God's glory. That's why we read in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes and his eternal power and his divine nature, i.e. his glory, these things have been clearly perceived and seen since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, So the world itself, the world that God made, has some element of God's glory in it. It testifies to the glory of, of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare, creation itself declares the glory of God. You've got a God who's beautiful and glorious, God who fashions his creation and puts his glory into it, and then his, the, the creation reflects his glory back to God and to the entire universe, the rest of creation. And anyone who beholds that creation will invariably behold the God who made it and worship him and glorify him. God is glorious. God creates his creation that reflects his glory and, and kind of is a, a, a vessel that care, that holds and kind of shines forth his glory. And at the apex of that creation, if all of creation is, in, is designed to reflect God's glory, then the one piece of creation that is designed specifically to do it more than anything else in all of creation is humanity. Humanity stands at the apex of God's creation. It's the one thing that reflects God's glory more than anything else, points to God's glory more than anything else. The one thing in creation that is supposed to behold God and worship God and glorify him more than anything else. In Genesis 1, when God creates the the earth and the sea and the skies and the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and the birds and vegetation, all of these things, after each successive day, he looks and he says, that's good. Right? I created this creation, and it reflects my glory, and it is good that it does that. But when God creates humanity on the sixth day, he doesn't say that's good. He says that's very good, because humanity, more than anything else in creation, reflects the glory of God, points to the glory of God, brings glory to God. And as it turns out, humanity did that. We did that for all of one chapter in the Bible. <laughs> and in, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and so, so the, the connotation is that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, there's something about the glory of God that was bound up in them that was lost or tarnished or marred or, or you know, uh, desecrated at that moment. And so now we are under sin we fall short of that the, the glorious vision, the glorious intention that God had for humanity. We don't embody it. We don't do it. We fall short of it. We do not reflect the glory of God in the way that we were created to do. We fall short of that. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if if verse 23 is essentially a summation of Romans 1, 2, and 3 up to verse 20, then Romans 4 is a summation of 
Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and, and 8. Unpacking this idea of, of the justification of sinners by God's grace. And so I want to take a look at four words in this verse in quick succession just to, you know, unpack what they are and what they mean. The first is this word justified. The word justify means to, to be proven right, to be, to, to be shown as, vindicated as, exposed as having been right. If you know someone that's always making excuses for themselves, always arguing, always, you know, wanting to make sure everyone, you know, knows how right they are and how wrong other people are, you might think in your head, man, that guy will, that guy will stop at nothing to justify, like, that guy is always trying to justify himself. It's obnoxious, right? The, the idea of, of justification means other people recognize that who I am and what I have done is right and not wrong. If you think I'm wrong or bad or I didn't or I made a bad choice, then I am not justified in your sight. And if you think, no, Ben made a good choice, a good decision, then I'm justified in your sight in that, that moment. And so... The doctrine of justification is how can a person who is who is undoubtedly, inarguably unrighteous, how can that person be declared righteous? How can God render a verdict that says this person is righteous before me when we have clear we are clearly not righteous before him? How can God Give a not guilty verdict to a person who is guilty. That's justification. Being given the status of righteous by God. So that's what we're going to unpack in the coming verses and chapters is the idea of justification. Next word is grace. Justification means to be declared right or righteous. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is the opposite of merit. Grace is the opposite of something that you have, have earned, right? We're going to see this in Romans 4, but when you when you work for something, then, then the wage that you receive for having worked for it is, is not grace. It's an obligation, right? When you go to work and clock in and you have a, an employment arrangement with your employer, your hourly pay, your uh, annual salary when it comes time for your paycheck, that's not grace, that's merit. You earned it. They cannot withhold it because it's yours. They have no right, no choice. Am I going to give this person this paycheck or not? It's merit. It's not a, word number four, it's not a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's not a wage. It's not compensation. It's not a Right, God is not obligated to give it to us. So, we're, so I, I was reading a book about gift giving this week. You know, after you know meditating on this verse, and we understand we this might not have the same ring to it in English and in 21st century America as it's supposed to, because I don't know that we quite understand the free and voluntariness of the word gift. Right, try, like try to not give your spouse a gift on their birthday or, or let them give you a Christmas present and you give them nothing and see how free and voluntary you understand gift to be. There are big companies, Walmart, K-Jewelers, Lexus, right? There are companies that spend a lot of money on marketing to make sure that you don't think the word gift means voluntary. They want you to think of it as obligatory. You have to do it. Every year at Christmas time, we all have to spend more money than we have to give gifts to people that they probably wouldn't have even gotten themselves. And if they had the choice of whether they're going to spend $50 on this thing that you spent $50 on, they'd say, no, I'll spend $10 at most, but not 50. So, so we have this cultural thing where we all spend way more money than we all collectively otherwise would have to give each other these, these gifts because we, we understand it to be obligatory. Ask a, ask a child when their birthday rolls around if they expect a cake and a party and presents. Uh, Christmas vacation, right? The boss 
cuts out bonuses and gives his employees the jelly of the month club. And the guy's like, you can't do that because we have come to expect this bonus as part of our salary. And we're all watching and we're like, yeah, that boss is because, yeah, because that bonus is not a gift that he gives his employees. It's a, it's something that they expect and he is therefore obligated to, to give them. If you're obligated to give something, then it's not a gift in the strictest sense of the word gift. You can call it a gift. If it makes you feel better, but it's not a gift. It's a payment. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. It's an obligation, but it's not a gift. And so when Paul uses the word gift, he's not thinking like we do about being obligated to give. He's thinking in the strict sense of this is a voluntary gift that I'm giving no strings attached. I don't have to give it if I don't want to, and I can. And the, when I do give it, then we all know that it's because I wanted to, not because I had to. The justification is being declared righteous. Grace is unmerited favor. Gift is voluntary. It's of my own accord, of my own volition. And then the fourth word, redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To redeem something means to buy it back, right? If a, a coupon is redeemed at a store, if you, re, if you click redeem gift card on, on Amazon, they are buying something back in exchange, in exchange for, for payment, right? We gave you this coupon in the mail for a dollar off of a gallon of milk. Now you're here with a gallon of milk, so we're going to buy that coupon back, as it were, in exchange for a dollar off the gallon of milk. We sold this gift card for $25, and now we're going to buy it back from you in exchange for $25 worth of, of stuff. When you redeem something, you buy it back. In the ancient world, if a person fell into extreme poverty, they didn't have bankruptcy. They didn't have, you know, they had selling yourself into slavery. That was the, that was the, if you fell into to debt that you could not repay, then you would sell yourself into slavery. The money that was made on you, your purchase price as a slave, as it were, would go to repay your uh, debts to all of your, your creditors. You read Leviticus chapter 25, there's all of these rules about the, the, the release of slaves, right? People who have sold themselves into slavery in that way, there's all these rules about how and when they can be released. And the word that's used over and over in Leviticus for releasing a slave, for buying a slave back out of slavery is redemption. It's redeemed. It's a, this person can be redeemed in this way at this time for these reasons. Redemption means to buy something back. When a person is redeemed, it means they are bought back out of slavery, out of bondage. The doctrine of redemption is how Jesus has bought us back out of slavery and bondage to sin. J.I. Packer says, Christ's death was our redemption. It was our rescue by ransom, the paying of a price that freed us from the jeopardy of guilt, the enslavement to sin, and the expectation of wrath. Christ's redemption freed us from the jeopardy of guilt, enslavement to sin, and expectation of, of wrath. We are justified, declared righteous by God's grace, unmerited favor, as a gift, completely voluntary, non-obligatory, through the redemption, the buying back, the purchasing back of us from uh, out from the, the bondage of sin that is in Christ Jesus. Whom, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood. So that's another word. We're not going to do four in this next verse, but we'll at least do one, which is the word propitiation. The propitiation means to satisfy or appease or make peace with, make amends with. To propitiate someone means to, to stop them from being angry or impatient by doing something to, to please them, making sure that their demands are met, that their terms are met, so that you and them can be uh, in right relationship rather than at enmity with each other. That's propitiation is the satisfaction of the offended party so that there can be a restored relationship. That's propitiation. Ligon Duncan says propitiation means to avert the wrath of God by offering a gift. It's the turning away of the wrath of God. It's the turning away of the just 
judgment of God for our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Propitiation. God is the offended party. God is the one who has terms that must be met in order for the relationship to be restored. And the propitiation is the satisfaction of God, the meeting of those terms, so that he can allow for the relationship between his holy person and our sinfulness to be to be bridged. The word propitiation, Jesus on the cross propitiated God, paid, satisfied the wrath of God, paid the debt that was owed. John Stott says, on the cross, divine love overcame divine wrath through divine sacrifice. Divine love overcame divine wrath, all the while upholding divine justice through divine sacrifice. It's propitiation. It's the satisfaction of, of wrath. It's the meeting of God's terms in order for salvation to be to be given. And, and it's not, I mean, it's not something that we should take for granted. It's not... There are a lot of people who identify as Christians who either explicitly deny the doctrine of propitiation or they uh, simply just, just, you know, quietly don't teach and don't hold to the doctrine of propitiation or they find the doctrine of propitiation objectionable, barbaric, savage, Detestable, right? The, doc, the doctrine of propitiation, they would feel, makes God out to be this cruel monster, right? The thinking is, if I can imagine one God who does require death for sinners, eternity in hell for sinners, or the murder of his own son in place of sinners. If that's one God over here that I can imagine in my mind, and then I can imagine another God who does not demand those things, I would think the former is mean and bad and savage, and the latter is good and loving and worthy of my worship. So they would say, we love the gospel, we love the good news, we love... We think that God is good and loving and he cares about you and he answers your prayers, but we don't think that he punishes sin. We don't think that he punishes sinners and we don't think that he demands satisfaction for sin, right? Those are things that we associate with an abusive father, a bad father, and love and forgiveness are things that we associate with a good father. There's a song, there's a song that we sing here called In Christ Alone. It's a great song. One of the lines in it says, uh, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The song explicitly teaches the doctrine of propitiation. There, about 10 years ago, there was a denomination that wanted to include that song in their hymnal, but they denied the doctrine of propitiation. And so they wrote the copyright holders of that song, and they were like, you know, legally we can't, Put it, we can't change the words to your song and include it in our hymnal, so we are uh, asking your permission to change it to uh, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They said we, you know, we have a we have a problem with that with that song, and the, the songwriter said, no, you can include that song as it is, or you can exclude it, and I'll forego those royalties, but you can't change it. That's my right. Uh, to insist on as the songwriter, and they excluded it. And they were given the, the people who were like, you know, overseeing the hymn writing committee or whatever, did, gave an interview, and they said, the original words express, the original words of the song, that the wrath of God was satisfied, they express a view of God's saving work in Christ that admittedly has been prevalent in Christian history that God's honor was violated by human sin, and that God's justice could only be satisfied by the atoning death of a sinless victim. Couldn't have said it better myself. Then they say, this is not our view. We felt that it would be a disservice to our mission to perpetuate the view that the cross 
is primarily about God's need to assuage God's own anger. Deny the doctrine of propitiation, right? Jesus, on the cross, Jesus was an example showing us how to live and, and, you know, suffer well. On the cross, Jesus was a friend drawing near to his people. On the cross, Jesus was a, a, a lover, right, making the ultimate sacrifice for his beloved. But on the cross, Jesus was not a substitute satisfying the wrath of God, saving people from wrath that is rightfully theirs, right? But, but the problem is, that's what propitiation is. That's what it means. That's what Paul is teaching clearly, that God put forward Jesus not as an example of how to suffer well, not as a friend to draw near to people who are suffering, but, but as a substitute, a, a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation, someone who's going to stand in your place, suffer in your place, bear the wrath of God that's rightfully yours by shedding his own blood. Jesus was put forward as a, a propitiation to be received by faith. So this is how this is how the work of Christ on the cross was accomplished. This is how those, those benefits are secured and appropriated to each particular individual. It happens when they trust in, in Jesus, right? Jesus' death on the cross and, and the, the Benefits that were secured by it have to be personally appropriated. They're appropriated by trusting in Christ as opposed to trusting in our... You know, trusting in Christ is not something that comes naturally. Our default posture is to trust in ourselves. When you, when you apply for a job and they say, hand me a resume, you don't give them a biography of Abraham Lincoln. When you apply for a mortgage. You don't, you give them your tax returns. You don't give them a Forbes article from, about Bill Gates, right? Like we're, we, our default posture is that I am judged on the merit of my own accomplishments. I look to myself and I rely on myself and what I have done and trusting in Christ pushes back against all of that, all of that cultural conditioning that says, Trust in yourself, rely on yourself. It says, don't trust in yourself, trust in Jesus, rely on Jesus, right? Stand before God and uh, ask to be treated not on the basis of what you have done, ask to be treated on the basis of what Christ has, has done. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus took my punishment. I'm going to rely entirely on what Christ, right? either I'm going to be accepted but on the basis of Christ's righteousness, or I'm not going to be accepted at all. Salvation is received by faith, by trusting in Christ. And Paul says this gospel, right, of being justified by grace as a gift through redemption by Christ, the propitiation, that gospel effectively serves to show God's righteousness. So, if, again, if, if, if someone were to say, propitiation is barbaric, propitiation is savage, propitiation is gross, a God who demands satisfaction for sin is not a good God, that's a bad God, it's a malevolent God, and it's, and it's you know, that's something that we believe, like, we've, we've moved on past that. Paul says, no, a God who demands satisfaction for sin is a God who is not barbaric and savage, it's a God who is righteous. God's righteousness is shown by his demanding satisfaction for sin. It doesn't show that he's abusive or barbaric. It shows that he is righteous. Imagine, imagine two judges, right? Judge number one, two judges, two courtrooms, two defendants. One judge says, I see the defendant. He's clearly guilty, incontrovertible evidence, smoking gun, but... I'm the judge. I can do whatever I want. I happen to like him. I happen to 
have a business venture with like with his brother. I'm gonna rule not guilty, even though he is guilty. I'm gonna make the wrong ruling and subvert justice because of a personal bias and a conflict of interest and a, and a financial incentive. Whereas the other judge says, clearly guilty, friend of mine in business with his with his brother. If I were to render a verdict of not guilty, it would be profitable for me financially. It would be, you know, it, it would be in accordance with my own preferences, but I have to do what's right. I took an oath. Justice must be done. Who's the better judge? When God punished Jesus in place of sinners on the cross, and satisfied his own divine wrath and demands of justice. It showed God's righteousness. It showed the entire world, the entire universe, that God would not compromise on righteousness and justice. He would not turn a blind eye to sin. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, meaning that for all of human history, humanity, it's almost like a credit card, right? Like was spending, like their sin amounted to spiritual spending, you know, storing up wrath from Romans 1, store like uh, this ever-increasing balance of wrath that is owed to humanity because of their sin that God had been passing over. God had been Right? God not punishing sin from Adam until Christ looked a lot like injustice. And so when God punished sin in Christ on the cross, he was vindicated. No longer can anyone accuse me of being a God who doesn't care about sin and a God who doesn't punish sin because sin, it is finished. Sin has been punished in Christ on the cross. And it showed his righteousness at that time, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. Exodus chapter 34. God refers to himself, describes himself, and says, I am the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. I am slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Okay, all makes sense. All seems to follow. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then he says, yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Wait, what? Like forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, maintaining love to generate, and does not leave the guilty unpunished. One theologian calls this the riddle of the Old Testament. How can God forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and at the same time, not leave the guilty unpunished? And the answer to that riddle of the Old Testament is here in Romans 3. Right? That God was both just, not leaving the guilty unpunished, and the justifier forgiving wickedness and rebellion and, and sin. At the, right, at the same time, God presented Christ as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement to satisfy his wrath so that justification and salvation can be given as a gift of grace to sinners who have fallen short of his glory. God is just in that he demands punishment for sin, and he's the justifier in that he forgives. Right? If God saved sinners apart from the death of Christ, if he turned the, a blind eye to sin and just welcomed them into his presence regardless of uh, whether their actions warranted punishment, he would be the justifier, but he would not be just. And if God condemned every single human being to eternity in hell from Adam on, conscious, eternal punishment forever, if God had done that, he would be just no one could ever call his justice into question, but he would not be the justifier because he would have never actually justified anyone. Apart from the gospel, God can either be just 
and not the justifier, or he can be the justifier and not be just. But only through the person and work of Christ can God be just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ. What does this mean for us? How do we live in light of it? Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If salvation was attained through works and not earned, or if it was earned through merit, then by all means, boast away. I am righteous. I am spiritual. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Doggone it, people like me, right? If, if salvation was, was earned, it was merited by works, then by all means, boast. But if salvation is by grace, then there's no room for boasting. What are you going to boast in? How incompetent you were to save yourself? How desperately you needed someone other than you to intervene in your situation and save you? How insufficient your own righteousness was that you needed God to impute Christ's righteousness to you? What are you gonna, there's nothing to boast in if salvation is received by grace. All you brought to the equation was sin and insufficiency. God brought grace, righteousness, forgiveness, assurance, eternal life. All you brought was sin. So there's no room for boasting. It is excluded. There's another question, right? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised and the uncircumcised. By, right? Paul's saying, if, if salvation were by works, you could boast in what you accomplished. It's not, so you can't. If salvation were only for Jews, for people of Israel, then you could boast that you're circumcised. You could boast that you're an Israelite. It's not, so you can't. If salvation were only for religious people, then you could boast about how religious you are, all the religious rituals that you have observed throughout your life. It's not, so you can't. Salvation is by faith. God is the one who saves sinners who trust in them. Jews, Gentiles, religious, non-religious, we're all in the same boat. So if you're a Gentile, if you're a non-religious person, right, you cannot come before God and say, there's probably some other way for me. I didn't grow up in Israel. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Obviously, salvation, right, salvation was made available to them in that way, but it's probably made available to me in some other way. We're all, circum we're all saved. We're all justified by the same faith. And if you're a Jewish person or a religious person, you can't come to God and say, all right, God, well, if, if you're going to save them by faith, those people, Gentiles, non-religious people, people that I think are morally inferior to me, if you're going to save them by faith, then there must be a different way for me, a superior way for me, a way that puts the spotlight on me and makes me look good and celebrates me and makes much of me. Paul says we're all justified the same way by faith, trusting in Christ. So then do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. The same word from before, right? May it never be. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul's going to get into this more in Romans 6 and 7, right? The, the, the allegation, the, the, the criticism was Paul, Paul's gospel amounts to lawlessness. Paul hates the law. He wants to give lawbreakers license to break the law without fear of reprisal. And Paul says, may it never, absolutely not. May it never be. I don't believe that. Don't teach that. Never have never will. Of course, obeying the law is important. The difference was, Paul articulated that we don't uphold the law because we have to, so that God will accept us by our works. We uphold the law because we get to, 
since God has already accepted us in Christ and since God has given us his spirit. He's given us new desires to love God and hate sin. He's given us supernatural power to overcome the sin that was previously dominating us. We're not, we're not saved by obedience to the law. We're saved by faith. But we don't overthrow the law. We uphold the law. People who identify as Christians and abuse the grace of God and intentionally throw themselves into unrepentant sin, thinking God will, better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? God will forgive me. According to Paul, a person who does that should think very carefully about whether they are really a Christian at all. Because that is the exact opposite of how Paul understands and envisions the Christian life. Christian life, according to Paul in Romans 3, Jesus comes to us, Jesus lives a perfect life, Jesus fulfills the law of God, Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for sin, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God, Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus' people look to him in faith, they trust in him instead of themselves, they're clothed with his righteousness instead of their own, they receive the salvation that he secured for them by grace as a gift, they're justified and declared righteous by God, God is then held up as and celebrated as righteous and just and the justifier, and then God's people walk in humility since they didn't earn their salvation, and they walk in holiness in response to the salvation that they have been given and that they received freely. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sins. We thank you that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God so that we might enjoy the mercy of God. And Lord, we ask you to help us to trust in you and receive your grace. We ask you to help us to, to worship you and walk with you and glorify you in all that we do. It's in Christ's name that we pray.